Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today, we're going to be telling you part two of the listener-suggested story from Cal J about the Grun family in Peru, Indiana. So pour yourself some coffee and let's dive in. So just a little recap for you. If you listened to last week's episode or if you didn't, last week was about the dynamic between the Grund family and the homicide of Jim Grund, who was the father figure in the home. So in this episode, I'm going to go more into the details of the investigation and tell you guys the rest of the story. Police knew that Jim had a lot of enemies because he was the Miami County prosecutor. So their suspect list was very very long because they had anyone he'd ever encountered through work that seems like a super terrifying job i think so very stressful i think like the prosecutor or just being an officer like any of that you know is super terrifying so the town judge which was bruce Embry, was also one of jim's good friends and he approved a warrant for the cops to search the house because they felt a little off about everything So Bruce goes to the crime scene. The Indiana State Police come in to investigate. Cops are investigating. Everybody's just looking around. One of the investigators tried to take a statement from Susan about the circumstances, but she was described as too distraught to speak. So they weren't able to really get anything from her at that point. The investigators searched the bedroom and it suggested that there was an intruder that had come in. The bedroom was a mess. The drawers were pulled out of the dresser and things were thrown around. And so they started to look around the house at like the doors and the windows and everything, but there were no signs of forced entry. So then there was the possibility that maybe a door was left unlocked, but it didn't seem likely. And what time of the day did this happen again? The medics arrived shortly before midnight, and that was when they pronounced him dead. So I don't remember the exact time. It was like 1150-ish. Or- but it was at night when doors would typically be locked. Yes. Susan had just gotten home, though, so it's possible one of the doors wasn't locked. The first thing the police did was go through the list of suspects for people that Jim had had a hand in putting away in the past. But they went through all of that, and it pretty quickly led to a dead end. So then they start to look into the family. It's interesting, too, that he had an occupation where they actually look outside of the family first before looking at the family, because typically in murder investigations they start with people friends and family and close relatives things like that yes it wasn't even 48 hours after the murder before they started to look into the family so it did move pretty quick but you're right they do typically go to the spouse first or family members or something like that so they start to look into susan david and jacob and how old are the children at this point? David is 21 at this point. And Jacob, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but based on the fact that he was around the age of three in 1983, I'm going to say right around 13, 14-ish. So he's kind of young, but I think that they just looked into him as a possibility. When police interview Susan, she gives them a rundown of what she did the entire day of the murder. And then she is pretty cooperative and answers all of their questions. But Susan pretty quickly 
informs the police that they really should look more into the stepson, David. The reasoning behind that was saying that David and Jim argued all the time. When police investigate 21-year-old David, they learn that he recently purchased a 9mm handgun, but he had reported it stolen on July 4th, 1992, saying that his apartment was broken into. So that would have been about a month prior to the murder. Police bring David in for questioning, and he tells the police that his dad did know about the gun and the fact that it had been stolen. David told police that he had told his dad his gun permit would be sent to his dad's house, and his dad was supposed to just, like, keep it there for him or bring it over to the, his apartment. But David says that it was not his dad that ended up bringing the permit to his house, but it was Susan, and she brought it to him on the afternoon of July 4th. So she brought the permit, and when she was at the apartment, she asked David if she could see the gun that he had bought. And it went missing that same day? Yes, Yep. So David takes her to his dresser drawer where he's got the pistol hidden and he shows Susan the gun and she asks him how to operate the gun. Doesn't seem fishy at all, I don't think. No, not at all. So then he puts it back in the drawer and moves on. Him and his girlfriend go out for the evening and when they get home after, they realize that the apartment had been broken into and like the screen door had been slit and the gun was the only thing missing. Once David gives them the information, the police start to search for whatever weapon had been used in the crime to see if it matches a 9mm. They had metal detectors searching everywhere. They had helicopters with metal detectors. Like, they put a lot of money into this, apparently, to search for the weapon. Police even searched Susan's son Jacob's locker and his book bag just to see if by chance he had taken David's gun. But that was a no-go. Did they check the house? Like, check to see if Susan had it? They had checked in the house and they hadn't found anything in the house that seemed suspicious. David did start to help with the investigation and he talks about places where he had previously fired the gun that he had had. So police go to that location and they get some of the shells and send them in to be analyzed and compared to the bullet that killed Jim. The results do come back and on August 12th, the crime lab confirms that Jim was killed by the gun that Jacob owned that was missing and about six days prior to this is when the funeral for jim was apparently the funeral was standing room only there were so many people there and everyone there was kind of tense because they all believed that susan was the one that had pulled the trigger none of them trusted her no one came right out and said anything during the funeral to her but it was very obvious because there were two lines at the funeral for people to go up and like you know at a funeral when like people the family members are standing up by the casket and you can walk by and talk to them Mm -hmm. or hug them or whatever your condolences yeah there was a line for the grunts so his children were standing up there and then there was a line for her And nobody went to her line, and it was just everybody in line with the children, giving them their condolences and not even speaking to her. That is so awkward. I can't even imagine. One, I mean, awkward. If you did commit the murder, it's awkward. But if you didn't commit the murder, that's a whole different level of awkward because you're mourning your husband who was just murdered. And yeah, so I I can't even imagine what that would have felt like for her. So, Jim's biological children even believed that Susan was the one that had done it. And they, even after Jim's funeral, they still didn't get along with Susan. They got really upset when five days after Jim died, Susan tried to open up the will. And 
here's the thing, though. When is the proper time to open up the will after somebody passes? I actually had this conversation not that long ago with, I don't know if it was you or my mom or someone. I don't know that there is because it can be viewed as like maybe disrespectful or like a lack of caring, or it could just be viewed of like, you're trying to get this stuff done and over with. Like for me, I would be trying to get everything in order just to like, you know, it's like a control thing kind of when you lack control. I don't, I think in this situation, maybe it's suspicious because she already seems suspicious. But in general, I don't think that's something you can look at. It's just like how people react to things differently emotionally, too. I don't know. For me, I think it's pretty open and you can't like pinpoint it. It's not black and white. I kind of agree. I mean, I think if you're opening it the day after the death, a little weird, maybe. But I think, you know, a week or so after isn't that far of a stretch at that point you're already planning the funeral you may have already you probably already had the funeral so you you've said your goodbyes you probably are just trying to finish things and and it's such a long process there's so much stuff you have to do especially if you're like the like next of kin or what you would call it power of attorney for this person there's so much that you have to do that i I just don't think it's that weird I, i agree The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. The other thing that was weird with the will is the children were claiming that it was a fraud because the will showed that the entire estate was given to Susan, which was estimated to be more than $250,000 and nothing was left to Jim's biological children. Is it that weird? I don't know. There Obviously, it changes for family dynamics, but I feel like it's kind of normal for the spouse to have control of all of that. Yeah. And you know what? I would 100% agree with you, except for the fact that Susan had Jim change the will about a month before his murder. Suspicious? Yeah. Because prior to that, she wasn't getting everything. Stuff was going to his kids. And he ha- she had him change it just before the trip to Alaska where they got in that big fight. But he had told people at like his law office that as soon as he got back from the vacation in Alaska, he was going to change the will back. He had just done it basically to make Susan happy for their trip. Obviously, he never got the chance. So police at this point start to continue to look into Susan. And this is when they look into her past. And they find that child abuse charge from 10 years ago. And this concerns police because they're like, if she was able to do that to a child. She clearly has violent tendencies. And so she would also be capable of murdering her husband. So that was something that really stood out to them and kept her on their radar. But they didn't have anything solid. You know, they needed something else, a weapon, a confession, anything to really determine if it was her or not. So Susan's sister Darlene was living in the house in Peru at the time because Susan asked her to like keep an eye on the house 
And at that point in time, the police showed up with another warrant to search the house. And Darlene has to let them in. So Darlene, like, calls her sister Susan and says, hey, you know, like, there was a search done of the house. They had a warrant. I had to let them in. And Susan immediately asks Darlene, quote, did they find it? End quote. And Darlene asks what she's referring to. And Susan said, the gun. Sounds suspicious to me. Don't know about you. But Darlene told Susan the police didn't find anything and they had left empty handed. But apparently at that point in time, Darlene said that Susan started to act even more suspicious. So within a few hours, Susan shows up at the house and supposedly is coming for the gun. So she grabs this teddy bear out of one of the rooms. And in this teddy bear is the gun, which is kind of smart to hide it in the teddy bear because who's searching all your stuffed animals? That is very clever. I agree. So she grabs the teddy bear and her and her sister head to Vincennes, which at this time, Susan's staying with her mom in Vincennes, Indiana. And Darlene said that she never saw the gun, but according to Susan, it was in that teddy bear. And while they're on this trip, Susan confessed to Darlene that she murdered Jim. And Darlene keeps this to herself for a little while. I was wondering if she was going to be kind of like an accessory after the fact or if she was going to go tell the police. I think it would be hard because it's your sister. Yeah, but I think if your sister says or brother or family member, whoever says they murdered someone, it's not really something you want to cover up. No, I don't think I would cover it up, but I think it would maybe make you pause a little bit more and think about coming forward. So Darlene did that and kept it to herself for two months and then finally went to the police. And she tells police that Susan told her, quote, Jimmy didn't want to go on living because I'm beautiful and he's getting fat and old. He thought he was losing me, end quote. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Rude. <laughs> I agree. So that was what Darlene said was part of Susan's confession. Not only did she say that she murdered him, but this was part of her reasoning behind it, I guess. Which that's she- so I... She's already divorced like four or five other people. So I think she knows divorce is a thing. So I don't know why, because he's getting old and she's staying beautiful. They can't just divorce. Like, why does he have to die? Well, and how she said it was that he wanted it. Yeah. Um, probably not. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess no. Yeah. So the police decide that they're going to wire Darlene up and have her talk to Susan to see if they can get the confession on tape. So Darlene goes to her mom's house where Susan's still living and confronts her sister about the murder. This time, Susan denies the murder and denies that she ever confessed it. So I don't know if she was suspicious of something here or she regretted the fact that she told her sister anything. I don't know. On November 2nd, 1992, police take all the evidence that they've gathered, which is kind of a lot at this point, take all of it to the judge. And by four o'clock in the morning the next day, they have a warrant for Susan's arrest. So they aren't wasting any time so they go to her mom's house and they just go right in and while she's asleep they just wake her up and arrest her so at this point susan was taken back to peru indiana and held at the jail but police still needed one more thing to secure it they needed that gun that was supposedly in the teddy bear did darling give any indication as to where it ended up last she knew it was at her mom's house susan had taken it into the house with her and that was it so they go to susan's mom's house in vincennes And they search and search and search, but they can't find the gun or the teddy bear. 
I was wondering, it seemed like a long period of time for her not to do something different with it. I agree. As they're getting ready for the trial, Susan's lawyer, Charlie Scruggs, requests a change for the location of the trial because he felt that it wouldn't be a fair trial in Peru because the town had already made up their mind about Susan and the Grund family was so prominent in the law field in Peru, they'd been, it had been like a family business for decades. So the motion for a new location was denied, and so it still happened in Peru, Indiana, but it would be from an outside judge and an outside jury. So the jury and the judge came from Warsaw, Indiana. They're still prepping for the trial at this point in time, and in August of 1993, so this is about a month before the trial, the police receive a phone call from Susan's mom, and her name's Nellie Sanders. Nellie tells them that she found an old wash tub that had gone missing about a year ago, and she'd found it up in her attic. And this had gone missing shortly after Susan had moved in. And so Nellie had asked Susan, like, what had happened to it, but Susan told Nellie that it was just gross and old, and so she just threw it away. But now Nellie's finding it in her attic. So she calls the police because the tub was filled with concrete. So police immediately go to Vincennes to look in the concrete because they're like, that's suspicious. They open up the concrete and just take a random guess what they find in said concrete. Is it maybe the murder weapon? It is. You're so good at this. So now they have the question of why in the hell she hid it. Because she's still saying she's innocent. Now they've got the gun. They've got all this. So did she hide it to protect herself or was she trying to protect somebody else? On September 27th, 1993, Susan goes into court for the murder of her husband. And the prosecutors basically say she was just worried her husband was going to divorce her soon and she wanted all of the money, which is why she had him change the will and why she was opening the will so soon. Those were their things that kind of backed it up. However, the defense believed David also had a motive. Now, Abby... Before I tell you what David's possible motive was, what do you think would be his possible motive? I'm just, I'm curious. Because I think I told you before we started recording this episode that it was a wild ride and there was a lot of twists and turns in this. And I've got another one for you. Well, I feel like typically motive would be money. And if he was in the will beforehand, that could be a motive. However, I feel like that's too plausible for it to be it. And I have a feeling it's going to be something to do with like, Maybe they think he has a relationship with Susan or loves her or something. And that's what it was. (laughs) Susan and David were having an affair. They believed that they were trying to protect each other. So Susan had hid the gun to protect David. Now, was this supposed affair like validated? Do they know it was happening or was this just something the defense said was happening? This is something that Susan said was happening. So still not... <laughs> but David denied. I was say, still not a lot of validity to it. So she's going to try to throw David under the bus, basically. I think so. She said that the affair had been happening for a while now, about two years. Jim had gone away on a business trip, and while he was away on that business trip, they'd started an affair, and that continued. It was a two-year-long affair up until the murder of Jim. So that's the supposed defense for why Susan was covering up for David because she was trying to cover him for the murder because she didn't want him to go to jail and because they'd been having an affair so she was trying to protect him all of this stuff but you know I don't it didn't seem like anybody was really believing a lot of it and the timeline of Susan's night would have given her just enough time to go home and shoot Jim 
after she had dropped Jacob off at the campsite, but before she picked her daughter up, her daughter Tanel and her niece up for their sleepover to bring them to the house. So she would have had enough time in between there to go and commit the murder and then to come home and act surprised. David also testified about the whole gun in the during the trial, talking about how Susan had seen the gun earlier in the day before it was stolen. And Susan's mom takes the stand and testifies against her daughter. Tub that she found full of concrete with the gun hidden inside. And Susan's sister, Darlene, takes the stand to testify about the confession. So it's kind of, I think it's hard when your family has to testify against you for something like that. I think that would be a very difficult decision for the family, but then I think it would also be hard for the defendant. It definitely seems like it would be a hard situation. And I know that they can't force spouses to testify against each other as well, which I think it's interesting that that is something as well. Is it still around? Do you know? Where they can't force a spouse to testify? Yeah. I believe that's still around. I mean, the spouse can testify if they want, but they can't be forced. But I think it probably happens more often than not because those are the people who are closest to, like, the defendants and probably have a good amount of information and insight into who that person is. Yeah, absolutely. So David, Susan's mom, and Darlene are the people that the prosecutors called to the stand. The only people, the only person that the defense calls to the stand is Susan. And Susan testifies that the gun was laying next to Jim's body and she called the police and panicked. So she hid the gun thinking that she was protecting David, like I said. That's when she really talks about the affair that's going on and like testifies about it during that. And so on September 30th, the jurors went to discuss the case and decide a verdict. The next day around one o'clock in the morning, so it was a long time of discussing and debating, the jurors came back and said that they were deadlocked. And so they were going to have to have a second trial. So she spends five months in jail. And then on March 7th, 1994, her trial begins. So this is about two years after the murder in case, because we talk about how long trials can take, but for people that don't really know how long it takes, it can take two years. It could take even longer. It's crazy. The time frame that really comes into play when you're dealing with like legalities. Yes. So in that second trial on March 7th, 1994, they bring in another outside jury once again from Warsaw, Indiana. And this time... It's reported that the judge didn't allow Susan to say a lot of the things that she said in the first trial, and she did not mention the affair with David because the lawyer had advised against it. So nine days later, on March 16th, the jury found Susan guilty of first-degree murder, and she received 60 years in prison. So to this day, Susan has continued to say that she's innocent and that she did not murder her husband. There's interviews with her in prison where she talks about how she's innocent, And there was an interview in 2010 that was done in the prison by Investigation Discovery Channel. And she sits down with an agent, with former FBI agent Candace DeLong. After the interview, Candace DeLong decides that Susan Grun is a delusional narcissist and expressed deep skepticism about her recollection of the events. And she believes that she's guilty. From, you know, hearing this story and what I gather, I bet... I would be willing to bet a lot of people, or at least the majority, probably leans towards Susan being guilty. I I would agree. I'm not sure, I guess, what everybody... 
I, from what I found, a lot of people do think that she was guilty. A fun fact about that FBI agent, though, Candace, she was the one who the character in Silence of the Lambs, Clarice Starling, was like based on. So she became famous through that. So she was she was a pretty big detective. So Susan's earliest possible release date from prison was May 25th, 2020. According to the Indiana Department of Corrections website, I couldn't see an actual date of release, but I believe that she was released in May of 2020. How old is she? So she would have been about 62 when she got released. And she is currently on parole, but it's out of the state of Indiana. So I don't know if it's one of those cases, because sometimes when you are released from prison in a state that you committed a crime, you're put on parole, but you're not allowed to reenter that state. So I don't, I'm assuming that's probably what it is. So that's all the information I really have for you, Abby. What are your thoughts? Do you think that she was innocent and she was protecting David? Do you think that she was guilty and committed the crime herself? Do you think that David and her were having an affair either way? Uh, I have no idea about the affair. I, I don't think I have an opinion on that one, but I mean, I would assume it's from all the evidence and the fact that she was found guilty. It sounds like she was in my like in my eyes. I obviously don't know everything though, so who knows? Yeah, from what I've researched and everything, I do think she was guilty. Maybe Candace was correct in the fact that Susan just really couldn't recall the night like the events of the night. Maybe it was something that she had blocked out of her head. She felt some sort of guilt for and just instead of having enough guilt to come forward she just had the guilt where she felt like she needed to continue to hide it either way susan spent a little over 26 years in prison for the murder of her husband so let us know in the comments on instagram or on facebook if you think that she was innocent or if you think that she killed her husband thanks for listening to this week's episode of crime over coffee you can find us on instagram at crime over coffee or on facebook at crime over coffee podcast where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found you can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crime over coffee pod at outlook.com also all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode if you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.